Hey everybody, welcome back to Jetlag. This is Andrew Smith, your host, and I'm here with Larry Heath, who is currently traveling right now. I certainly am. I'm here sitting in uh, South Ontario, Canada, with, uh, with our guest today, Jennifer Enyan from, uh, from Australia, a, uh, a freelance travel journalist. Is that, is that the best way to, uh, to describe you? I think so, definitely. Yeah, journo, freelance travel writer. Sounds good to me. Awesome. So uh, what, do you, what do you find yourself doing there right now? Well, we're here on a travel for mill, um, basically a trip that has been organized for a, a small group of travel journalists from Australia celebrating the 150th birthday of Canada. They're um, uh, sending journalists from all over the world around Canada throughout the month of July, which uh, coincides with Canada Day and uh, a bunch of other celebrations. So um, FAMIL being short for familiarization, which uh, is basically a, an, an old uh, uh, an old tech term for the um, uh, tourism boards sending journalists and travel trade to uh, events uh, and, and giving them itineraries. And it's kind of a, a remarkable thing that, uh, that travel journalists get to do. So, and we both find ourselves on the same trip here in um, Thousand Islands, Ontario, Canada. Yeah, you know, that, that, the term for mill is funny to me because I'd never heard it before I moved to Australia. I'd done some social media stuff and worked with, you know, Tourism France and Tourism Long Beach. And, and we just call it an itinerary. And I got to Australia and they're like, yeah, here's a famille for this you know, event with, I don't know, Canon or whatever. I'm like, what's a famille? Like, I thought it was short for like family group or I, I had no idea. Um, what about travel junket? No. <laughs> no, that, that would go over my head. Travel junket? Yeah, that's, that's one we call it as well. Really? Yeah, I think, for, I think a fam or a famille is more common, but definitely travel junket gets thrown around as well. That's so funny to me. Well, you would know. You you would both know best. So, as uh, currently traveling bloggers, essentially, can you give us a little bit of insight on, on what that really means? Because I think you know. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think now would mark one of the first times that people are becoming aware of bloggers or influencers, as you would call it, um, just because of you know Instagram bringing this all to the forefront. What is life as a travel blogger like what does that actually mean well i i think we should clarify that uh, we probably would not call jennifer a a travel blogger she um she's a freelance journalist which basically means she's writing for different publications some of them might be blogs others are magazines others are um, radio stations um so um while there's sort of this trendy term for blogger um, that doesn't really define, that doesn't define every journalist. Some are focused on radio, some are focused on Instagram. Um, uh, for the four tr- journalists that, that, that we're with, um, we, we all come from different fields, but I don't think you'd call any of us bloggers. No, right? definitely not. Definitely not. I think uh, there's a couple of us, well, Larry and uh, another lady that we've got here both have websites. And uh, the other two, myself and another gentleman, we're uh, trained journalists, I guess. So with a news background, so very different to a blogger, um, but I guess all working together in the same sphere. And, so. and I think for, for a lot of more 
traditional journalists, I think the word blogging is a bit of a dirty word. Would, would you agree? <laughs> I would agree to that. And I think, yeah, it's sort of, it is a little bit frowned upon. It's sort of not getting the same, um, it depends who you talk to really, but it's one of those things where uh, trained journalists do like to remove themselves a little bit from bloggers. Um, whether that's a good or bad thing, I don't know, but you know, we, we like the fact that we, we've done university and we've done the hard yards, I think. <laughs> kind of pride ourselves on that. So do you find yourself in the same group as this new wave or new generation of, of you know, self-described bloggers or influencers or whatever you call it? Are, are they getting lumped in or do you find yourself not interacting with them? I think overall you're in the same group, definitely, because you're all a media. Um, but we've had this discussion actually on this trip and you very much there's different sections within the media now and as a freelance travel writer you definitely need to be able to do everything so you know you're invited on a trip and you are expected to instagram use facebook twitter all of that as well as you know probably not to the same degree as a you know professional instagrammer as such um but yeah i think you're definitely in the same group but there's just varying degrees of of what you're expected to do and, and what you enjoy doing and, and what you want to do so yeah, it's an so, interesting time for, for the media industry. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. So how do you get into what you do? How, how did this come up? Was it gradual? Was it decided? Was it something you, you, you did immediately after school? How did that work? As in uh, freelancing or travel writing or both? Both. <laughs> okay, so my background is as a news journalist. So I did uh, actually did social science at a university and studied international politics and with the intent of being a news journalist and moved into, I started in radio as a newsreader and then after a couple of years got a little bit tired of that game and, you know, going to press conferences with politicians got a little bit boring <laughs> and media scrums, you know, that, that deal and eventually moved into feature writing and that paved the way for travel writing, which was essentially what I always wanted to do. So it was sort of just taking those those little steps and, and kind of earning your stripes and, and learning uh, the news cycle and, and I guess the, the skills of a journalist, uh, the research skills and um, grammatical skills, all of that, and then moving into the, the travel writing or feature writing realm. And then freelancing actually, so I've been a news journalist for about 10 years or just a little bit over, and freelancing came about a couple of years ago when I just wanted a bit of a lifestyle change and thought, well, I may as well give it a go now before I get too old. <laughs> and thought I'll see, see if I can survive as a freelancer and it's going fantastically. Awesome. So what does it look like when a new gig comes up? Is it, have you built this massive network of people who are always just reaching out to you or are you still uh, reaching out and you know, presenting your services for new opportunities? Or what does that process look like for you on a normal basis? So I think you develop these relationships with really good uh, public relations um, officers. And you, know, you do tend to deal with those ones. If you, if you get a good relationship with someone, you stick with them and you, know, you prove yourself to them and, and vice versa. But I don't think a freelancer can ever sit 
you know, idle and wait for the invitations to come to them. You're always going out and always seeking to improve what you do and to expand your horizons as such. And whether that's a new destination, perhaps, then you've never worked with that destination before, or it's just dealing with someone new that's, you know, PR professionals, they, they move in and out of the game quite frequently. So you're always sort of building relationships and continuing on that, that side of the, the industry as well. Do you find there, you know, looking back on, on the, your time as a news journalist where everything was sort of handed to you and you did did whatever you were told to, to a certain degree, was is it harder now for you to get what you want? I, I, I'm, I'm, as in story angles? Yeah, story angles, because you're you're limited by who you're pitching to and you might have the greatest trip in the world, but if you don't have the publications that say, oh, we want to publish this story, trips might fall through. You know, what are the what are some of the drawbacks to being a freelance journalist and how do you balance that with getting to do what you want? Yeah, I think that is probably the hardest part about being a freelancer. You know, it doesn't matter how much or how invested I am in a story. If I can't convince an editor that that's a fantastic story and write for their audience, then I can't write about it. Um, and I think that's that's definitely one of the biggest challenges. And as a freelancer, you really need to practice pitching. That's where that comes down to. You know, you can be a fantastic writer, but if you can't sell that story idea in, say, two sentences and get, you know, grab the attention of an editor, then you're out of luck. You need to be doing something else. So there's, there's definitely that. I think that's the real struggle with a lot of freelancers. And I think you've just got to keep at it. If you really believe in an actual angle or a destination or a, a story that's really in-depth, you've got to find that right publication for it. And it might mean that, you know, you're not writing for the national newspaper. You might be writing for a really small boutique magazine or something, but at least you're getting that story out there. And, and I think that's what um, probably is most satisfying when you get to tell those stories that you really, really want to tell. So really from both angles, from the side... PR and the side of the publications you're working for, it's really about those relationships and that can make or break the career of, of a freelance journalist in any field, but particularly in travel. Yeah, big time, big time. It's all about the relationships and you don't want to burn any bridges. And uh, that's why when you do find someone that you get along really well with and, you know, they can depend on you and vice versa, then you stick with them, I think. Uh, yeah, it's it's one of those, <laughs> it's definitely a, a flippant in industry or, you know, the side of the industry. But I think as well with, with freelancing, there are a lot of obstacles, but there are a lot of, uh, you know, selling points too. The flexibility for one is just fantastic. And I think when you when you have a family or you have other sort of jobs on the go or other sort of, I don't, you know, I still do news journalism as well. So it's nice that my travel writing can fit into that. But it's, um, yeah, those relationships mean a lot. And is it ever hard to balance that maintaining a relationship with telling the truth in an article you know we've both been sent on on stories which in the real world you mightn't be as kind as perhaps you ended up having to be to maintain that relationship um can you talk me through a little bit about maybe <laughs> some times where you've had to balance that in a way that you know maybe wasn't the best but you just did what you had to do yes definitely I think uh, I was giving Larry an example earlier on this trip that I I won't say that the company <clears throat> but I did this fantastic hike in Nepal and you know I 
I wrote about it, wrote numerous articles about it, but I, I really was very honest. I think for first and foremost, your, your reader is, you know, who you have to be honest with and, and you know, otherwise you go, you'll lose your readership and, and you need to be honest with yourself as well. So I would, uh, in this particular case, I, I wrote this story and I was very honest about the challenges of hiking in Nepal and, and how... Um, how strenuous that was really and and how much pressure that put on the body and and your health and you know I didn't get the best response from from the company that sent me to do that trip because they thought it was a little bit too harsh it was a little bit too real for readers uh, despite the fact that someone had actually come in and, and booked a trip off that reading that article so yeah there there are times where you definitely you feel like you okay you have to balance and I think that's the big that's the key balance you know you need to be honest with the reader if something is really poor I'm not going to recommend it because I always think okay would I recommend this to a friend or to a family member and if the answer is no then I'm not going to to put it in the article so there's two ways you can either put completely exclude it from the article or you can mention it um, in a very fair way and then perhaps mention something positive afterwards. So, you know, you're never lying to anyone but you're you're just creating a fair article where it's, uh, you know, you're still saying, you're still admitting what's actually happened and, and what you would personally recommend and I think that's really important. Do you do many trips do, or do you write about many trips outside of the Famil guys? As in what you're sent to kind of cover? Yeah, do you write, ever write about anything? Because, I mean, when you started travel writing, I imagine you were writing about your personal experiences more than trips you were being sent on by certain PR companies. Mm-hmm. So um, are you still doing that or is this taking up all your time? No, I definitely still do that. I do that more with, so for example, I love camping and I love camping in national parks in Australia. We have some stunning national parks. So I definitely do. If I, if I go on a personal trip and then I think there is a story to tell or it's a beautiful destination that I want to recommend, then I will then go ahead and pitch that story to editors. So I don't particularly go on that trip with that in mind. But I think as a, a writer, you're always thinking anyway. Everything's a story. So always in the back of your mind, you know, I don't, I don't leave leave the house without pen and paper (laughs) a little bit old school but that's the way I roll and you know I think whenever you meet people and whenever you go somewhere you're always just looking for another story so you know some of them turn into fantastic stories some of them don't at all but yeah definitely still do a little bit of both I mean obviously you do the 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 trips that are organized through work more so Uh, we don't always get a ton of holidays but yeah there's always um, stories that you're finding that are, are off your own back. You got started out in travel journalism through pretty unconventional means. Most people don't go through news, traditional news journalism and end up in travel. Some do. Uh, But that doesn't seem to be the contemporary, traditional way to do it now. It's all, I'm an Instagram blogger, I can do this. Um, You know, for those that listen to us ramble on and go, I want to do what they do. I want to travel around the world and get paid to do it. Um, Which, when you put it like that, sounds pretty damn good. Um, what advice would you have for them to start heading down that road? The, the first thing that everyone needs to do is to write. You know, it's all well and good to actually say that you want to be a travel writer and, you know, you post these beautiful photos on Instagram, but you actually need to hone your craft as a writer. And the more you do that, the more you realise the mistakes that you make in, you know, grammatical errors, you uh, realise your sentence structure, all of these things. You need to self-edit your writing. So you need to write a lot. You need to then self-edit and you you actually need to take criticism too. So if you have an, an editor who, you know, comes back to you after you 
submit a story and, and criticises something or asks you to rewrite something, don't be too proud to not do it. Go ahead and, and take that on board and say, well, this person's been doing it for 30 odd years, so I'm going to take their advice and and you know rewrite or fix the piece if they see that that's what needs to be done. But I think for people that are that are wanting to start out, determination. You know, you really have to just stick at it. You, it's not going to happen overnight. You know, it might, might for Instagrammers sometimes, but I think you know too many people want to be you know, whether it's travel writers or they want to be television personalities or whatever it is in the media industry, you know, some people expect it to just happen overnight and you you really just need to keep working at it. You know, believe in yourself and just keep writing or just stick at it. I think that determination goes a long way. Don't, and don't take no for an answer in that same respect. Yeah. Um, not every publication is going to be interested, but that doesn't mean that your work isn't deserving of an audience. Yeah, exactly. That's very true. You know, there's there are some stories, as I mentioned before, that you can't sell to a national newspaper, and you might need to go and find that that niche magazine, and th- and that might take six months to do before you actually get a, a response from an editor or from the right editor. So yeah, that sort of comes down to knowing that you've got a good story and and believing in your writing, um, but not being too um, too overconfident really, and and not being able to take criticism either. Hmm. So. As uh, as two people who are professional writers and professional travelers, what would you say is the most common thing that people just don't understand about your job? Or if somebody were to come to you and say, oh my gosh, you have the best job in the world. I'm so jealous. What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Like, oh, if you only knew. <laughs> I think that's a good one. I, I really hate it when people tell us how lucky we are. Because yes, we're fortunate to do what we do, but we work really hard. And you know, there's been, especially at the start of my career, many times that I have done overnight shifts to get where I am today. So I think when you know, when you get friends that say, "Oh, you enjoying your holiday?" You're thinking, "Wait a minute, a, a hotel inspection is not part of a normal holiday, <laughs> <laughs> or sitting down with a you know a general manager isn't particularly fun." You know, it's uh, they're the sort of things that grate on me a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you've nailed it in one with your question, Andrew. It's it, that really is the um, the most frustrating thing. I think is that perspective. I mean, because you you want everyone to think that through social media and all that, you've got to be like, yeah, look at this great time I'm having, because that's literally what you're being paid to do. So it's this hard balance of like, and and we've Jennifer and I've been talking about this on this trip. It's like we've lost friends over the years because they look at what our lives and, and compare it to their own and go, well, you're so lucky and I'm envious or, or whatever it might be. And it, and it just creates kind of these weird dynamics with certain friends because yeah, we, we're incredibly, incredibly privileged. I mean, talk about like first world problems that we're talking about here. <laughs> oh no, we're having to do another trip, but, <laughs> but, but it is a lot of work and they're sleepless nights. And you're, I mean, I, I run a business, I do these trips and I'm still having to file stories and I'm having to write business proposals and pay my rent and mm. do all the things that I have to do as though I was at home. I'm my, my out of office just says I might be taking a little longer to get back to you. I'm not on holiday. Um, and that perspective I think is, is, is important, but at the same time, it doesn't matter. We are very lucky to do what we do. And, um, it's, it's, it's certainly a, uh, a very minimal issue if, if certain people are going to, um, struggle to comprehend that. Mm. I'd have to agree there. 
Well, you know, the phrase is always the grass is always greener. And I know, you know, not currently, but in previous positions I've been in, you know, it's very odd to find yourself looking at, you know, what is essentially an office job and then find all of these amazing features that come along with this cubicle. Um, But on the flip side, once you're in that cubicle, it becomes very obvious, you know, all the things that you're not doing instead. Um, You know, I think personally for me, I, I, I really love the freelance life, but the grass is always greener and there's things about the other life that are always enviable. So, you know, all you listeners out there, before you dive in you think travel or freelance or all this is the thing for me, there are hardships. There are the sleepless nights and the long things you have to do on airplanes and in hotels and without eating or sometimes overeating. If you have to go to five restaurants in a row, (laughs) And, and it is funny because it is a flip of the coin. Some of these trips, some of them can be really just lonely and and trying to say the least. Um, what's what's one of the hardest? I mean, you've got a family, and and you know what's what's been one of the hardest times for you traveling? Oh, that's a good question. I haven't really thought about that before. Um, you know, yes, definitely I miss my, my family. That's that's hard. But I think on these trips you're so busy that you don't really get to stop anyway. So, you know, there's the odd FaceTime home and, you know, the odd video here and there. But what's hard, I think I think just juggle, the juggle, you know. it's As you said, we've both been, um, Larry and I have both been working on this trip. So so we're here working and then we're filing stories for, for other publications or for, you know, Larry's publication. And... You know, we, you don't stop. We've been up to 1 o'clock, 3 a.m., you know, writing and filing and, and emailing and doing other things on top of what we're doing on this trip. So I, I think that's that's a pretty good challenge, um, juggling all of that. And, and I think as well that we haven't touched on yet is, you know, it might feel like we're in these beautiful destinations and, you know, we feel like we're kind of on a holiday because we're being shouted out at these lovely restaurants and seeing these fantastic uh, places but you actually have to be quite strict with your spending as well because you're not on a holiday. You know, you're, you're at work and you can't be going out and buying presents for everyone every single trip you go on if you travel every month, you know. <laughs> so and it's a silly thing to mention, but it's, it's one of those things you, you really have to get in the right mindset when you're doing these trips. Even a day like today. So we, we spent most of the day kayaking, which is the sort of thing you do when you go on a holiday. And it's very easy to fall into a pattern. And I've done this on past trips where I've really struggled to get my work done because I get into a headspace of like, I've, I've been up since six this morning. I've, I've been, I've been doing all these touristy things all day. I'm getting back to the hotel 14 hours later. Mm. And the last thing I want to do is open the computer and check my emails. And when you're having to work on these trips, it's, that's challenging. That's um, mm. it's really difficult, especially when everyone's telling you you're on holiday as well. It's <laughs> difficult to get it into the into the headspace of like, no, no, this is work. This is I've got to get emails done. I've got to file this story. I've got to write this proposal or yeah. whatever it might be. You know, I think one of the hardest things we've found on this trip as well is that because journalists do have to do everything, Instagram and and Facebook and Twitter and all of that. You know, we're squeezing in. Our, our normal writing time, then we've got to fit in the social media. 
and then we're trying to make calls home and and say hello to family and we're doing all of that within you know an hour between <laughs> kayaking and dinner for example yeah you know another thing about the job and this is a, a perfect transition into the question for today but uh, a lot of what you do can't start until you arrive so you have to travel and you're in transit now depending on where you're from uh that can either be really easy or really difficult and i think for for both of you since you're both australian it's actually pretty easy and for myself as an american it's also really easy and so i wanted to bring up the topic of uh of passports and kind of how they rank and uh have either of you ever heard of the vri no i haven't no so it stands for the visa restriction index and it's actually a scale, uh, and that scale just goes by how many countries can this passport get into sans a visa? Um, so there's, there's a company called Henley and Partners that puts this together, and there's also this website that's called passportindex.org, and it's really fascinating. Uh, they're both really well visualized, and you go in there, and there's these multicolored passports, and you can compare countries versus each other. Um, but, you know, a, as an American, I hear a lot of other Americans always want to focus on our power and our freedom but with that in mind we don't actually rank at the top of this list if you had any idea what the top ranking most powerful passport on the vri is what what would you guess oh, maybe i'm thinking maybe switzerland or somewhere like that larry what do you think larry new zealand's always been really strong New Zealand's always been a really good passport because everyone loves the hobbits. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So uh, New Zealand is a little bit higher than Switzerland. Uh, but both of those are beyond 10 stops from the top or at least tied for other places below third. Number one ranked in the world is actually Germany. They can visit 176 countries without getting a visa at all. Um, now, I say that, you know, New Zealand or Australia or the U.S. aren't first. We're really not that far behind because in comparison, the U.S., uh, we can get into 156 countries without a visa. So we're only behind by, uh, we're only behind by two or three. Let's see here. Yeah, we're only behind by, by two. Uh, it also totally depends on your purpose, right? So, for example, if I were to go to Australia right now as a tourist, I could basically just show up. Um, I don't really, don't really have to do much as long as I leave before three months. I'm not going to get in any trouble. Um, but if I have any work intent, it's entirely different. Um, so I, I think in terms of our, our discussion, this is just entering very quickly um, to go for a visit and maybe pop out. Um, you know, in, in your current job, you wouldn't be able to get into the U.S. Uh, you know, if you're fully disclosing all your business purposes or Canada for that matter. Um, but yeah, that said, Australia's really highly ranked as well. You can get into 153 countries. Um, and when you look at uh, passportindex.org, which I would encourage anybody to check out, even if it's just for a chuckle, you can use a compare feature and it will show every single country uh, in a, in a column comparing each country. And it's very interesting to see slight differences. Um, you know, for example, U.S., if we 
if we want to take a trip to Iran, the visa is required for U.S. citizens before we even leave. But for Australia and Germany, you can get a visa on arrival. So I wanted to bring up a few points uh, before we just chat about it a little bit. So I, the VRI or the, the visa restriction index really isn't the only thing we should look at. And um, this was brought up on a, on a blog by a guy named Ben. Um, he's got a blog called One Mile at a Time. And he brought up some really good points. He has dual citizenship. And, and from my research, it seems like dual citizenship is the most powerful by far because essentially you just get to take the benefits of one passport and combine it with the other and choose at your own discretion. So he made some really good points. Like if, if you're going to the, the EU or in the UK, most of the major, pass, um, most of the major airports have e-passport gates. So they can walk up, use a kiosk, skip all the queues and just go on. So uh, there's some real world time and hassle benefits to passports that I hadn't really thought of previously. And I know for frequent travelers, um, you know, Larry, I, when you come to LA, do you use the global entry? I do not. Well, I, the global entry, I guess you can apply for it. It's on the website and, and they try and coax you in with skipping lines. We also have like TSA pre in the US, but that's only for domestic travel. Um, so I guess there's, yeah, there's time saved there. Like if you can use e-passport, you should use your EU passport if you've got one. And, and similarly in the U.S., you'd, you would have global entry. Um, another really good point is that apparently compared to at least Germany in this example, the U.S. passport is literally just thicker. So if you're going to travel to a lot of places, you're going to run out of stamps uh, in a longer duration than if you were to use your German passport and then thereby save yourself the hassle of having to renew it, um, <laughs> which I thought was really funny. So everything is bigger in the U.S. <laughs> um, and, you know, I wanted to ask you both, you're both Australian citizens. Have you noticed any situations where your passport has uh, been an advantage or a disadvantage? I don't think I have as much. My husband actually has um, an English passport as well, and I know that when applying for certain visas it will actually be cheaper if he uses the english passport as opposed to the australian so that's i definitely know that's, that's one right. of the benefits of having the jewel but for mine i don't think i've i've paid that much attention to it um f for me it's really i mean the australian passport is really handy if you're going to a commonwealth country it makes your life easier particularly if you are going to study or work in that place so i studied in canada uh, in vancouver for a semester I didn't even need a visa to do that because I had an Australian passport and I was there for wow. less than six months. Even though I was studying, I was attending a university there. I couldn't work. I couldn't, um, you know, I couldn't have earned money when I was there, but um, I didn't need a visa. I just went in as a tourist. Ironically, because I was entering and exiting out of the US on that same trip, I had to get a US visa. So I was studying in Canada, but I needed a US visa because I was going to be spending more than 90 days in North America. So one thing with the Australian passport, pretty much any passport that isn't US or, or Canadian or Mexican, you can't go to Canada or Mexico to restart, restart your 90 days. You have to leave North America entirely. Mm -hmm. So that's a bit of a frustrating thing, um, wow. especially in that context, because it was sort of this unnecessary and expensive visa I had to get uh, just to study in Canada. Mm. 
Wow, that's really interesting. I, I know that when I was living in Korea, uh, and a very common thing there is just, yeah, the visa run. Everybody buys round-trip tickets to Japan, uh, checks out of customs, and then walks straight back in and gets on a plane and goes home, unless you know they want to go enjoy Tokyo for a bit. Um, but yeah, really good point about the, the cost of visas, because I think that's, from what I can tell, the last and, and um, biggest difference between a lot of the passports is just the visa issue with prices. So for example, uh, you know, a lot of countries have what's called reciprocity, and they uh, have an agreement where if one country requires this expensive visa or has a long process, the other country will just adopt it in kind. So being that, you know, for myself, the U.S. does have a lot of restrictions for people to get in, a lot of those same countries will just turn around and uh, require a fee for any U.S. citizens on arrival, even though um, they don't really need, you know, the, the, the visa ahead of time. They still have to pay. So in that case, if you had another passport, uh, for example, you know, Germany, you could just go in and not pay anything. Or if, if both countries have to pay, sometimes one is more expensive than another, which I find hilarious that these countries are gaming each other uh, out of what seems like spite or opportunity. Um, and, and, you know, uh, Larry, I remember when we had uh, Jared Levy on the show, we were, we were on that travel show, and he... Uh, you know, by birth has a lot of uh, Jewish family members and we had to go film an episode in Lebanon and during that period of time he was extremely worried because, uh, you know, if you have any travel plans or history of going to Israel many Middle Eastern countries won't let you in even though you have nothing to do with that country so, yeah, you know, if you're Jewish and you're from the U.S. that doesn't matter about getting into uh, Middle Eastern countries. It's just that he had been in the last 10 years. So he had to get another passport to deal with it and had this sense of, you know, fear. But if he had another passport from another country, he could just simply use that and never even worry about it. Yeah. And a lot of the problems now that um, people are having coming into America um, from other countries, including Australia, and they're getting questions and sometimes not let into the country not for any other reason, but because they've been to an Iran or somewhere like that um, in the last couple of years. Um, and that's becoming a bit of an issue, particularly um, in, uh, in, in Trump's America, where they're really nailing down on this whole idea of if you have a stamp of a certain country in your passport, then we have the right to deny you entry and or at least question you for three hours about who you are, why you were there. Um, that was what happened. Was it Mim Fox, the Australian children's author? Mem Fox, yeah. Mem Fox, sorry. Um, apparently she was questioned for hours and put through this terrible ordeal. And the reason it was, it, it came out because she had uh, visited Iran or something mm, like that. Yes. Um, yep. So it's, um, which, which by all accounts is an incredible place to visit. Um, and and everyone I know who's been there just raves about going to Iran, but exactly. um, but that's a that's another story, <laughs> another podcast, another podcast. Yeah, I've, I've I've heard the same things though. To be honest, I've heard everybody who goes there rave endlessly about it. But there are a lot of problems, both getting in and out. Uh, it sounds like you're going to have more problems 
coming back to your own home country, at least mine, than you'll experience on the ground in that country at all, which is crazy. And, and it brings up another point. Um, you know, the e-passport gate versus the global entry. So the, the expedited, automated feature in the EU, in the UK, many times you can just use this kiosk, uh, sign in, get your receipt, and you just leave. You can immediately go to baggage and get your bag. But even in the US, uh, if, you, if you go to LAX, which is a global entry airport, um, as, as a citizen, I use that system, I get the receipt from the kiosk, and I still have to go get in a line and talk with an immigration officer. Now, my experience is going to be easier. Um, it'll be quicker because he doesn't have to do any of those things or you know look up all these extra questions. But he still, you still have to stop. You still have to talk to them, and they still ask you questions. So there's just no way around it. And it honestly hasn't made it that much quicker. I was at LAX uh, last month and went through. So I did the whole e-passport e thing. I, I got the ticket. I lined up. The whole process took three hours and I missed my connection flight. And, and then by comparison, I went through Vancouver Airport last week and they've finally put in e-passport machines. Um, but, and they still have, and they have mm. adopted the same system, exactly the same as LAX where you, you go through, you get a ticket, and then you talk to someone. But it was really quick, really simple. Um, there were absolutely no problems, and they've really improved things at Vancouver Airport. But it's it's remarkable how this thing supposed to be this thing that's supposed to be about automation hasn't really made any difference. You still mm -hmm. have to line up to use. It's just added an extra step. It's interesting the Vancouver one because I was still grilled. <laughs> you know, why am I coming in? And, you know, it did make it, I think, a little bit quicker. But really, if, you go, if you're going to talk to someone anyway, I don't know why you just don't do that in the first place. But I don't know if you know this. You, we actually have, uh, in Australia, we do have the e-passports the e and the, the ticket machine. And you, you pretty much go in and as soon as you, got, you have your ticket, you stand for a photo and then you go get your bags. You know, it's, it's quite easy. For, but that only is for certain passports. Exactly. So from certain countries. But I believe the US is, is able to use those mm -hmm. machines. It, yeah, it seems like, it seems like um, regardless of passport, there are certain countries where the protocol for customs trumps everything. And not to be, uh, not to make a pun, but I, I just did <laughs> because it's uh, it's part of the protocol here where uh, immigration are allowed to question anybody they want for basically just directly profiling, and and it's part of the protocol and. Not only that, it's, it's essentially been empowered uh, recently. Now, I don't know if your average TSA employee or uh, immigration employee uh, likes what's going on, but they certainly have all the tools at their disposal, and they certainly have the blessing of our government to make it difficult. Um, you know, the U.S. is an anomaly in a lot of ways with the population and how many people immigrate here. But, um, yeah, as you said, certain countries is just a breeze, and it... It feels really good, I have to say. There's nothing better than an, an easy entry into a country. It's just the best. <laughs> yeah, especially after a long flight from Australia, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, keep in mind, we have to fly 15 fucking hours to get anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. So so uh, before we wrap up, where, where, are you, uh, where are you looking to go next and what's in your horizons? 
So what have I got next? I'm actually doing a couple of domestic trips so in Australia. So I have one up to a beautiful uh, sort of surf beach area called the Sunshine Coast in Queensland in Australia. So that'll be in a couple of weeks time, which will be beautiful going uh, hiking for a couple of days and then actually swimming, hopefully if the weather cooperates, swimming with humpback whales. So that'll be fantastic. And then hopefully it's winter in Australia at the moment. So hopefully where I'll be fitting in a couple of snow trips, but um, you know, I've only got a couple of months left, so (laughs) that'll be a tight squeeze. Uh, And yeah, a few more domestic trips really. I'm sort of sticking to Australia, which is, is, has been really nice. Amazing. So it sounds like you have some really awesome trips coming up. If, uh, if our listeners wanted to follow your work and read all of your writing and check all of your social, where, where would they do that? Where are your profiles at? So I have uh, just a normal website, jenniferenyon.com, but I have also just started an, an adventure website, which is called theadventurejournal.com.au. So that's actually all about uh, adventure travel and the, the adventure industry. So yeah, that's probably the, the best two places to find it. All right, everybody. Well, you heard the links. Make sure you check them out. We, we're going to link them below on the site. Um, yeah, but for now, thanks so much for joining us. It was really awesome talking to you and just hearing the professional side of, of travel writing and, and freelancing and um, looking forward to seeing what you put out. Thanks for having me. All right, everybody. Well, thanks for tuning in. We'll, we'll catch you next time. <laughs>